Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hello, and thank you so much for your company. I hope you've had a terrific week. I'm excited today to introduce you to one of my favourite artists. He's probably one of the best performers I've ever seen live, and I can tell you I've seen a few. Walter Trout just gives his absolute all to his music, and I guess with the backstory he's about to share, it really comes as no surprise. Walter knows and appreciates just how lucky he is to still be on this earth, and his music reflects the honesty of the life that he's lived. Walter's career began in the late 60s when he became a sideman, playing with people like Joe Tex, Bo Diddley, Big Mama Thornton and the late great John Lee Hooker. They call it Stormy Monday And Tuesday's just as bad They call it Stormy Monday Tuesday's just as bad Wednesday's the worst Walter played lead guitar for Canned Heat. He toured with them extensively and then went on to be lead guitarist in John Mayall's Blues Breakers. From sideman to band member to band leader, Walter Trout has notched up five decades of making great music in which he speaks of life, death and love. I think I'll let him tell you more. Well, I can tell you your perspective on life changes drastically and your idea of what's important and what's not really important changes drastically. Walter's remembering what happened to him in June of 2013. While he was touring Germany, he started suffering symptoms of liver cirrhosis, weakness, loss of appetite, weight loss and nausea. His health began to deteriorate rapidly, but he decided to continue the tour despite the fact that he was told by doctors that he needed a new liver within the next 90 days. So what happened? I had a liver transplant six years ago, and this is the fifth album I've put out since I came back. I have been a criminal, and I have been a clown. A victim of desires that only brought me down. I want to see. Good and bad here 
making music. I just love it more than anything. And this one was very personal, I think. I think it's about as honest as I can write. My, my previous album was called Survivor Blues. The original plan was I was going to do two albums simultaneously. I was going to do an album of old blues songs, and I was going to do an album of all original songs. And I was supposed to record them all at the same time, and they were going to come out as a package deal. I finished the blues album, and I did seven or eight songs of the original album. Then I had to go out on tour. And the tour lasted for months and months, so it, it became, well, let's let's release the blues album, right? So when I got back from the tour and it was time to finish the original album, I listened to it again with fresh ears and threw most of it out and started over and rewrote pretty much the whole thing. It's ordinary madness. It's the everyday kind. Nothing special It's just there In your mind It's the sadness And the fear And the anger that you feel Every day It just lays There in your gut And it won't go away It's just Ordinary madness And it's here inside I can tell you this, I think I'm happier with this record almost than any record I've ever done. Most of the records I do, I listen to them once or twice, then I don't want to hear it because all I hear is, oh, I should have sung that different or I could have done a better solo there. Why did we have that drum beat in this song? It should have been, you know, a different cymbal line or something. This one, I don't get that. I've listened to it a thousand times and I still go, I'm not hearing anything that I would change. But I have to say, I worked harder on it. I can give you an example, a ballad on there. It's called My Foolish Pride. And um, the rhythm guitar on that song, I redid maybe four times with four different sounds, four different amplifiers, four different approaches. I would go in and I would spend half a day getting it where I thought it was perfect. Then I would get up the next morning and go, no, that's not it. I wanted it to sound kind of like a Buffalo Springfield rhythm guitar part. Right. It took me four different tries before I got it right. Sometimes I do my best, but I fail. album was pretty special to you before it was even created. You set out with a different mindset from the start. That's true. This album, Ordinary Madness, everything was thought out in advance and there was a lot of planning and then things changed. It was a lot of fun. It was really creative. I think what moves me about it is that it is truly a um, collaboration between my wife and I. We were sitting in our house in California. I was strumming my acoustic and I said, wow, I have this melody and it's really pretty. Listen to this melody and listen to these chord changes. And it's almost McCartney-esque. 
And I said, but it's got all these syllables. It's got all these words. I have no idea what to do with this thing. And she said, well, play it again for me. And I played it again and her eyes glazed over and she walked out of the room and came back a half an hour later and said, here's your lyrics. The music is me, the lyrics are her. It tears me up. in the first place? It was September 29th. It was 1990. I was in Denmark recording my second album, which was called Prisoner of a Dream. And I did a music festival in a little town called Holstebro. We were in a big hall and there were 2,000 people there. And I kept seeing this beautiful blonde-haired girl in the back of the room, and our eyes were vibing back and forth across the people, and we were just communicating across these people. And she started moving toward the stage and, and the crowd. This is all true. The crowd parted like the Red Sea, and she came up and stood in front of the stage, and I sang and played to her. I couldn't stop looking at her, and I fell over the microphone, and I... <laughs> I finally just said, hey, you, I've, we have to meet. And um, we went out and we walked around this little Danish village together. And 40 minutes later, I said, you're going to move to America. We're going to get married. We're going to have children and we're going to get old together. And she said, you are crazy. And then I said, and you have no say in this because this is destiny. And uh, a week later, she said, yep. And that was 30 years ago and three kids. Kind of weird. It's like right out of a movie, you know. Well, your whole life has been a bit like out of a movie, hasn't it? What I read <laughs> of you, it's like it's like a complete fairy tale. Yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting. And I'm still going, even really just being here. It doesn't really compute that I'm still here because the illness I had, I was in that hospital bed for eight months I had brain damage. I lost 120 pounds. I didn't recognize my wife from my children. I lost the ability to speak. They finally gave me the, the transplant, the new liver. I, I didn't have a bite of solid food for six months. I had a hose in my nose. I had to get speech therapy and relearn about talking. I also had not used my legs in eight months, so I had to go and originally, when I got out of the hospital, I was in a wheelchair, and then I moved to crutches and a walker, and then I moved, you know, I was in physical therapy a lot. The real bummer that happened for me when I got home, because I had had brain damage, I didn't know how to play the guitar anymore. I had to start over again from scratch and teach myself from the very beginning how to play chords and how to play bar chords and how to play scales and how do you bend a note. I had to do all of it. And I worked on it seven hours a day, every day for a year. And then after not being on a stage for two years, I made my return to the stage at Royal Albert Hall in London. So yeah, it's, it was pretty exciting, uh, time for me you know what did that experience leave you with do you, you obviously must see life very differently having gone through all that well i can tell you your perspective on life 
changes drastically and your idea of what's important and what's not really important changes drastically and your appreciation for every moment that you're here changes drastically after you stare death in in the face every day for months and months and months and in that liver ward there were people dying all around me every day and I, really why I'm here is I don't know I go through that all the time you could always revert to Billy Preston's line that that's the way God planned it why can't we be humble like the good Lord said he promised to exalt us but low is the way men be so greedy when there's so much left all things God given and they all have been blessed that's the way But what is the plan? To me, I think what I came upon, I did an album called Battle Scars when I got back. And that album tells the story. It's the story of the whole thing. It's, and it ends with a song called Gonna Live Again. And that song was me asking the higher power, why have you kept me here? In the last verse, I think I find the reason. I say, I think I know the answer. I think I know the plan. I have the chance to be a better man. Lately I've been wondering why you kept me here for so long With all my indiscretions, all the people that I have done wrong There must be a reason that I cannot see I'm gonna live again, live again. Walter Trout becoming the better man. Stand by for more. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks for being here. I'm chatting with blues giant Walter Trout, who's already shared a little bit about the excesses of his darkest era. Walter says it could all be traced back to his troubled childhood, where an unstable stepfather was a terrifying presence. Thank goodness his mother nurtured him and his talent so well. There are a lot of musicians I know who, when they were kids and they told their parents, I think I want to be a musician, the parents said, that's just a pipe dream. You have to have a real job and, you you know, that... They were discouraged by their parents. My parents, from the time I was a little kid, they took me to see great music and Broadway plays and Shakespearean plays, and they loved the arts. And from the first time I started playing and said, I think I want to do this, they were like, oh, we think that's great. Even in sort of my teenage years, my mother was on the faculty of my high school. I ended up quitting school and saying, I just want to go play in a band. She got a lot of grief from the other teachers at the school. Your kid's a dropout. And she would say, no, my my kid's a a great musician, and that's what he's going to do. And she would say to me, I hear you playing the guitar in your bedroom, and man, you can do it. I think you can go out and you can do this and you can be successful. My parents had divorced and they had both remarried. And both sets of parents that I had supported me completely and loved that I wanted to do this. So I I was really lucky. Do you remember what music you were most influenced by? It depends on what age we're talking about. I went through a phase where I wanted to be in musicals. You know, I saw Robert Preston in The Music Man, that movie, and I thought, my God, I want to be Robert Preston. I want to sing, you got trouble. 
right here, River City, you know, with a capital B and that Roger, then all that stuff. And my mother always took me to Broadway. We saw all sorts of great musicals and great Broadway stars in person. And then I wanted to be a jazz trumpet player. I started the trumpet at age five and, and I was listening to Coltrane and Miles Davis and Clark Terry was a big favorite of mine. He's a great trumpet player. But then at a certain age, I got to say, my brother, when I was into being a jazz trumpeter, my brother comes home and says, I know this is not what you've been listening to, but I think you need to hear this guy. This is really unique. And there's really something going on here. I was 10 years old and he brought home the very first album by Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden there were these very simple songs but with all this, these messages in it, and, and it was so unique at the time. And I was just like, wow, this is a whole other thing that I've been hearing. Well, I don't know why I love you like I do. Nobody in the world can get along with you. You got the ways of a devil sleeping in a lion's den. I come home last night, you wouldn't even let me in. Well, sometimes you're as sweet as anybody want to be When you get a crazy notion jumping all over me When you give me the blues, I guess you're satisfied And you give me the blues, I want to lay down and die I ended up, I got myself a cheap acoustic and started learning three-chord folk songs. And that was sort of the turning point for me. I, I kind of never went back. You know, I did... I did play the trumpet all through high school in the marching band and the orchestra. And the awesome thing in high school, if I was in the marching band, the orchestra, and the choir, I didn't have to go to gym class. <laughs> Anything to so get out of other school. Guys were, uh, other guys were running around the track and doing all that, and I was singing or playing music, you know. Right. Were you popular at school? I don't know. I, I had a group of friends who were weird musicians and artists, but we were sort of the outcasts. I was in a school that was very geared towards athletics. Yeah. As a matter of fact, my mom told me, who was who worked there, she said, you should go to a different high school. You're not going to fit in here. You're an artist, and this school is all about athletics. Huh. But I found a group of, you know, in the in the orchestra and in the choir um, I found a group of like folks, but we were definitely weird and ostracized, but we had our own little group and we were artists and I still know a lot of them. And did the girls like musicians or like they like the athletic jocks? It depends on which girl you're talking about. <laughs> you know, there were some very artistic and musical girls and, um, you know, my, my first girlfriend was the piano player who backed up the choir. She was in the same grade as me, and right. I actually wrote my, my one big European hit. I wrote it about her. My pretty southern lady The time has come at last gigantic European hit in 1990. 
and we're still friends actually i had dinner with her in california two weeks ago and i played her some of my new album and um she's one of my wife's best friends so this is the truth i walk with my arm around each of them and i go first and last how long did it take you to start writing your own material high school here you go if you want to insert something that girlfriend i told you about my first real serious one my mother who was a teacher used to have the summer off we're in new jersey she would take off and go to oregon and california for the summer she loved the west and i would be in our apartment alone 16 17 years old and which was great how you know good times my girlfriend was over there one night and then she had to go home and I uh, looked and there was a pair of her earrings that were left on the table and there was some of her cigarette ashes on the floor. And the first song I ever wrote was called Earrings on the Table. And I recorded that on my second album. So if you play that one, that's the first song I ever wrote. It seems oh so long since you were here in my head always said it's still so clear You know how I love to hold you near When I'm lonely I can't hold back my tears Your laughter and smile are still in my head I still see your imprint on the bed Your earrings on the table There's ashes on the floor I wish I'd see you standing in my door It built up from there then. I mean, you'd made the decision you were going to be a professional musician. It did take a bit of time before you got a record deal though, didn't it? Oh, it took a long time, yeah. But I I went through many years as a sideman. I was a very successful sideman. I was in a band in New Jersey right out of high school, even still when we were seniors, but right out of high school. We had a horn line and we played in clubs and we did Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears. And then we would do stacks, songs and Motown tunes and was for people to dance to, but we worked all the time. Then I I ended up moving to California to really pursue my career, and I became a sideman. And in those years, I played with John Lee Hooker and Big Mama Thornton and Percy Mayfield and Lowell Folsom and Pee Wee Creighton and Eddie Clean Ed Vinson and Bo Diddley. I played two years with the great... Mr. Jesse Ed Davis. And if you're not sure who that is, you have to look him up. He's at the concert for Bangladesh playing with George Harrison and Bob Dylan. He was an American Indian and he was one of the greatest guitarists of all time. And I got into his band when I was 22 playing rhythm for him. So I had 15 to 17 years as a side man, 
And it was a great career. I got to tour the world, and then I got in with Canned Heat. I want to talk about them. How did you get your break in the first place to join any of those bands, from John Lee Hooker right through a lot of them? How does that happen for a young kid? There is a thing. First, you have to have the talent and the ability, but there is also a bit of luck, a bit of being at the right place at the right time, and I can tell you exactly how it started for me. I was playing in a club band in Orange County, California, and we were very successful. We had a residency in a beautiful nightclub. We played five nights a week, five hours a night for almost two years, but we didn't play on Sundays. And we were doing, again, top 40 songs, Eagles, Beatles, stuff uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. And, um, friend of mine said, hey, Walter, uh, I was on the Redondo Beach Pier last Sunday afternoon, and there were these older African-American fellows, and they were only playing the blues. And I asked them, if I bring my friend up, can he sit in? They said, sure. So my buddy and I drove up to the Redondo Beach Pier that day, and there they were, a group of of elderly African-American guys playing blues. And they said, yeah, okay, you can come up and play one song. Kind of begrudgingly, they looked at me and, what's this kid doing? I got up and played a song and they said, hey, play another one. I played another one. They said, stay up for the set. I stayed up for the set and they said, you want to join the band? And it was John Lee Hooker's backup band, the Coast to Coast Blues Band. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, 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 bang. I love the way you walk. And I love the way you talk. When you walk that walk. And you talk that talk. You knocks me out. Out off of my feet. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, boom, boom. Bang, 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 bang. How, 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 how. How, 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 how. I immediately went back to the bar band in Orange County and said, I'm out of here. And with these guys is how I got to play with all those people. Uh-huh. And while I was playing with these guys at a legendary nightclub in Hermosa Beach called The Lighthouse, A lot of great jazz players played there and great live albums from, I think, people like Cannonball Adderley and stuff came out of there. But I was playing there and a group of kind of crusty looking fellas came in and sat there all night and listened to me. They came back the next night and I go, oh, those are the same guys. And they walk up and go, hi, we're Canned Heat. Would you like to join our band? So that experience of going to the pier that day if i had not done that i might still be playing in the bar of course i had the ability and the talent but that was being at the right place at the right time and i didn't want to go that day my friends like come on let's go and i'm like hey man i just played five nights i'm gonna sit on the couch and watch a movie and he goes no man I told him you're coming. You got to. So I go, okay, yeah. That day completely changed the trajectory of my life. How confident were you in your own abilities? Did you know how good you were? You must have. I did, but I also knew that however good you are, there's always somebody better. There's always somebody to look up to, there's always something to aspire to. And I always knew that no matter how much you learn on an instrument, you don't really know anything because it's limitless. You're only limited by your imagination, what you can think of. And to me, that's, for example, what made Jeff Beck the greatest ever was his imagination. He never shredded, he barely played fast, but everything he played, you're like, How did he come up with that?
was legendary, wasn't he? The late, great Jeff Beck. Back in a sec with more. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. He's known as one of the best blues guitarists on the planet and playing with canned heat nearly killed him. It was my first really touring band. I'd been in these club bands that we'd go to a ski resort and play there for a month or do something like that. So those were road trips. But this was one-nighters, city after city after city. Yes, there were lots of drugs and alcohol. And um, I was young and I was had moved to L.A. from a little farm town in New Jersey and I was living the life. And I paid for it years later because I'm on liver number two. Well, I saw Tata Cron, but I'm out on the road again. I'm on the road again. Well, I'm so Tata Cron, but I'm out on the road again. I'm on the road again. I ain't got no woman just to call my special friend. You know, the first time I traveled out in the rain and snow, in the rain and snow. I've been sober since 1987. Congratulations. How low did you have to get to decide that? I got pretty low. I hit bottom, but I was playing with John Mayall, the great John Mayall. The first tour I did with him, he and I were both drinking and we bonded over our drinking. And we would sit in the back seat of the van and just get rip roaring drunk every day. And then he quit, he got sober and he kind of encouraged me and it took a while. Also, when I was home and I was not on tour, I had a house band at a bar in my band for a while, I had Richie Hayward, the drummer from Little Feet, and he was sober and he would encourage me. But the final straw was I played a gig in East Berlin, Germany, when it was communist in 87. And uh, Carlos Santana was there and he came up to me afterwards and he's like, what are you doing, man? And, and I go, what do you mean? And he, he said, you have a gift of music. You've been given a gift and you're so drunk up there. He said, you're doing this and he, to, and he pointed that to the sky and he said, you're doing that to where you got the gift. And he gave me a book to read. He said, go upstairs and read this book and let's talk tomorrow. And he spent the next two days. We had great long talks. What a great man. I went to Mr. Mayall and said, you will never see me drunk or high again. All the loving is loving. All the kissing is kissing. All the loving is loving. All the kissing is kissing. Before I met you, baby. The book said everybody has something that they're passionate about or something that they have a, a certain talent for. And what they need to do is figure out what that is. They need to take it seriously. They need to nurture it and develop it to the best of their ability. And then by sharing that with the world, they make the world a little bit better place. You might be a car mechanic, you might be an engineer, you might be an Uber driver, but whatever you're doing, do it to the very best of your ability and take it seriously. It was called Discover Your Possibilities and it was by Reverend Robert Schuler. And um, that's what Carlos told me, is instead of the party, man, while you're out here, you, you need to be an artist, you need to develop your music, you need to take your gift seriously. That's what I've done ever since.
music would have benefited from that, right? Oh, it benefited incredibly. I had this romanticized vision of the hard living blues man. He dies young and is all screwed up and gotta have a drink and living crazy and all that crap. And then the first night I was sober and I had not played sober since I was like 15 or something. I went on stage with Mr. Mayall and I went over to test my amp and I played a G chord and the emotional connection to that G chord is something I had not felt ever, I don't think. And I started weeping and I realized that drinking and drugs don't don't enhance your emotional connection to the music. They 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 dull it. They cut it. It's a buffer. And that if you give yourself to your art and your music just as who you are without any stimulants or substances, you can hit levels of emotional involvement that were unimaginable before. And um, I just loved going on and playing sober. And I still do. I couldn't imagine like now having a beer or something and trying to play or smoking a joint and trying to play. Mm -hmm. Then you're not you're not yourself. You know, you're not your heart isn't there. There's a wall between you and your feelings. So in saying that, it was an easy transition. Well, that was in April of 87. (laughs) Okay. Then May, June, July, July 4th, I had been sober for two and a half months. I was with my first wife and we went up on the roof of our house and she had a bottle of champagne And I said, I've been sober for two and a half months. I'm great. I'm fine. I can have a glass of champagne and we'll watch the fireworks. And I had a glass of champagne and that turned into a five day bender where I disappeared. I went off, came back five days later, hadn't changed my clothes, hadn't bathed. I don't even know where I was, actually. That was July the 9th. And then. I stopped. So to me, my birthday is July the 9th of 87. I also learned I can't have a glass of champagne. If I have a glass of champagne, I need another glass of champagne. Then I need a shot of Jack Daniels, and then I start needing something to snort. It's best. I, I Just don't do it. Don't start. And that's the lesson I learned. It's good you learned it, but you paid the price for all that hard living, as you said, didn't you? I did, of course. Months and months in hospital. um, But the gratefulness I feel now to be alive and to have a life and a beautiful wife and three great kids and a career, it's astounding. Sometimes I hear a familiar song It brings back a memory I close my eyes and it don't take long Ghosts appear to me on my cheek Unforgiving and so unkind They begin to speak You know it breaks me down When I hear the words I say No matter how hard I try I just can't chase those ghosts away A lot of artists that I speak to say that as a bluesman, you have to pay your dues. You have to suffer the blues. Well, I have to say, I feel like since I went through all that health stuff, I have a lot more to say in my music. You know, I sat down on the couch and I taught myself from scratch the same way I did in 1962. I started with some chords and I worked on it seven, six, seven hours a day every day for a little over a year. And then it came back. I had to really put in the work and it came back and then it was time. I wonder what would happen if I got up on a stage. I hadn't been on a stage in over two years. Most guys would go down to the corner pub, see what happens. (laughs) My dear wife and manager 
got me. Um, I played at Royal Albert Hall in London. You know, uh, no pressure there. It was a high pressure evening. <laughs> I walked out there. I don't know what's going to happen. Can I play? Am I going to fall over? And I counted to four. And when that band came in behind me, I was just like, this is where I live. This is what I have done all my life. I've been every night of my life it was on a stage somewhere if I was able to get on a stage and I'm home man and I just went okay I'm back you can just imagine how well Walter's return to the stage went today he's set to release his 31st album that's again full of passion perhaps because he's still got a lot to say yeah I got a lot of stuff man I got a lot of songs do you have your firm favorites I actually really like the ones I've been doing since my illness and since my comeback. I think they have an extra added bit of, as you say, passion and something to say. I'm a big fan of Battle Scars. It was the one I wrote after my illness. And again, my dear wife, I was sitting around after the music came back and she kind of said, you're not really being a nice guy. And so did my kids say this. And, you know, you've been through a trauma and you either need to go talk to a therapist about it or she goes, why don't you try writing a song about it? And she gave me that idea. Like, maybe I should write a song about what happened. And two to three days, I wrote 18 songs and that became Battle Scars. But I wrote them strictly to be therapy. I didn't know it would be a record, and they're pretty graphic and depressing and dark, but that's as honest as I can get. Now I get the feeling that something's gone wrong. Can't help believing I won't last too long. Won't last too long. cathartic for you. I've done the same thing with the new album. I think I've made a few statements on this one, but to just keep making music and to, to leave a legacy behind is important to me. I try to live now in gratitude that I'm alive. I know we're all on borrowed time, but I'm deeply aware of that. And to be able to just keep expressing myself and having a career and, and having a family full of love. How lucky am I, you know? There are so many lessons we can take from Walter Trout's life, aren't there? Perhaps the greatest one being, whatever you're doing, give it your all and try to appreciate where you're at right now. Thanks again for your company today. For those of you listening in Australia, Walter Trout's about to hit our shores. Make sure you go and see him. As I said at the outset, one of the greatest live shows I've ever seen. I hope you've had a great time today. And don't forget, if you'd like to request a guest, just reach out to me through the website, abreathoffreshair.com.au. I look forward to being back with you again, same time next week. 
Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day mm-hmm. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.